Hello, I'm Wendy Rigby, host of the podcast, Texas Biobites from Texas Biomed. Malaria is a worldwide scourge infecting 200 million people around the world and killing more than 400,000 of them. The parasite is carried by the Anopheles mosquito, particularly in tropical areas like Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Texas Biomed scientists recently published a journal article about a study they conducted examining these insidious parasites, which are becoming more and more drug-resistant. It's a huge problem. I'm Tim Anderson. I'm the interim chair of the genetics department, uh, and my lab works on parasitic diseases. Uh, in particular, we work on malaria, uh, the most important of the parasitic diseases infecting humans, and we work on schistosomes, uh, which are the most important of the, the helminthin parasites in, infecting humans. When you call malaria the most important parasitic disease infecting humans, why do you say that? Let me give you some numbers. So malaria, at the last count, I think, uh, infected over 200 million people per year with a death toll of just over 400,000 people every year. That sounds impressive, but in fact, this is an enormous improvement on the situation 10 years ago. We pretty well halved the death rate a number of cases of malaria in, in that time. How does malaria kill you? Well, malaria infects red blood cells. For a start, you are reducing numbers of red blood cells, you have problems with anemia. Infected red blood cells will bind to capillaries in key parts of the body, like the brain, leading to coma and death. So in fact, there are multiple ways in which malaria really causes death or causes severe morbidity in human populations. So the parasite is carried by mosquitoes. What kind of mosquitoes and where are they a problem? So it's carried by anopheline mosquitoes. Anopheline mosquitoes are found pretty well all over the world. Malaria is especially the pr a problem in tropical areas, so all across sub-Saharan Africa, all across Asia. It's really important to note that we have mosquitoes in this country that are perfectly capable of carrying malaria. And un until really the 1950s, malaria was present in this country. Uh, malaria was a big problem all around San Antonio. Thousands of people used to die every year uh, in San Antonio. So what changed? Uh, what changed here? We all live in nice houses with air conditioning. We have drained and removed many mosquito breeding sites. With treatment programs, we've managed to reduce numbers of cases, but mainly it's environmental modification that has led to, to elimination of malaria in this country. Malaria is a disease of poverty. Again, one easy way is to reduce poverty. That will reduce malaria. That's not going to happen in a hurry. We need to think of alternatives. So on many of these places, people are living outdoors and they probably don't even have a, a bed net or certainly a screened window to protect them. Uh, in many places, yes. People are exposed to multiple infective mosquito bites uh, every day. In a village in Tanzania, people may have a, a hundred infective mosquito bites per night. 
So uh, they are constantly challenged with uh, malaria parasites. Tell me about this particular research. Who funded it and what were you trying to find out? Well, this research is funded by the National Institutes for Health. We are particularly interested in the evolution of drug resistance. Uh, that is a reoccurring problem in control of tropical diseases. And we have no vaccine for malaria. So the mainstay of control of malaria is treatment with drugs. But along with extensive treatment comes this problem of evolution of resistance. So our group is really trying to understand how resistance evolves, what genes are involved, how many times resistance has evolved independently. If resistance has evolved very few times, then it should be quite easy to improve treatment protocols, say to include combination therapies and really reduce the probability of resistance evolving. If uh, resistance has evolved multiple times, then the situation is much more difficult. So this particular work, we're investigating resistance to artemisinin. Artemisinin is a drug that has been really instrumental in reducing numbers of cases in malaria over the past 10 years. And that's gone wonderfully well, but we now have the problem of artemisinin resistance spreading in Southeast Asia. And this gives a horrible sense of deja vu because during the last century, resistance to chloroquine spread in Southeast Asia jumped over to sub-Saharan Africa, where mo most of the cases were, and really was a calamity for control efforts. People thought they were on the way to eliminating malaria in the 1950s and 60s. And again, this century, people think we're on the way, but we have resistance again spreading across Southeast Asia. And the big worry is we will have parasites that then spread into sub-Saharan Africa, and we're back to square one again. So, interestingly, with artemisinin resistance, it has arisen at least 125 times independently in Southeast Asia. So multiple independent origins of resistance alleles. So that means there are 125 different genetic mutations? Precisely what I mean. So we know there is a particular gene involved in resistance called Kelch 13. But when you sequence that gene, you find multiple different mutations that are associated with resistance. Each parasite will have just one of these mutations, but you go to another patient, collect parasites, and they will have different mutations. And that tells us that this is not a single event, this is multiple events that have uh, led to resistance. This sounds like really bad news from a layperson's perspective. Uh, yes, it's extremely bad news. But it's actually more interesting than that. So we have this uh, multiple different drug resistance alleles in Southeast Asia, but we are seeing just one of those alleles is really out-competing and spreading to high frequency, leaving all those other alleles behind. So it seems like we have a super successful resistance allele that is spreading across Southeast Asia. And what we want to do is understand what's good about this allele. Why is it so super successful? Can you explain to us what is an allele? Uh, an allele is simply a, a variant sequence at a particular gene of interest. 
What did you find in this study that was worthy of publishing? Well, so we were interested in the idea that perhaps fitness of alleles plays a role. Let me let me explain that a bit more. So very often drug resistance alleles actually involve a metabolic change uh, within parasites. And these metabolic changes may be good for actually protecting against the effect of drugs, but they're very often bad for the parasites. They inhibit their growth rates. Resistance alleles may have adverse consequences for parasites, resulting in them growing less fast and being competitively inferior. So we wanted to test the idea that perhaps these really successful resistance alleles carry lower fitness costs than the less successful resistance alleles, and therefore they're able to take over. Because the parasites themselves are thriving better than the other ones. Uh, exactly simply because those parasites are both resistant and healthier and better able to grow than other parasites. And what did you find? Uh, well, in short, we found that our hypothesis was left wanting. <laughs> we found actually that uh, uh, the successful resistance allele actually carried higher resistance costs. Uh, it actually grew less well uh, than other alleles. Uh, so we have to rethink a little bit about what this means. And what we think it means is this allele on its own is not the full story. We think there are other alleles or other loci present in the parasite genome that are able to restore fitness to these parasites. So it may be a little more complex yes, than you thought at the beginning. That's right. So we, we tested what seemed like a very simple idea. We found that in fact, that did not explain the results. So we now have to modify the hypothesis. We think there's something slightly more complicated going on, and we can now test our new hypothesis. Will this help you move forward in trying to find new therapies for malaria? The main thing we want to do is understand why these alleles are different. But I think one possible avenue here is that by doing this work, we can potentially uh, identify other loci in the parasite genome that are involved in response to artemisinin selection. And if we know what those loci are, we can think about possibly targeting them with future interventions. When you enter Dr. Anderson's lab, you'll find a team of busy people, some of whom are growing parasites in flasks of red blood cells and finding ways to measure and recreate mutations. My name is Shalini Nair and I'm a senior research associate at Texas Biomed. And what do you do? Basically, I like to um, troubleshoot and solve problems and, and see how that can help answer interesting questions and drug resistance in our lab. I'm working on the genetics of drug resistance in Tim Anderson's lab for the past 18 years. As a result of our research, we were able to publish this paper. What was your part in this research? I started out by uh, figuring out how to use CRISPR-Cas9 to edit key mutations in the malaria parasite. Can you explain to our audience what CRISPR is? Yes, um, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeats. 
CRISPR-Cas9 is a genome editing tool that's derived from bacteria or archaea. CRISPR involves the sequence of a guide RNA, which actually uh, binds to the region you're interested in editing. And Cas9 is the protein that acts as the scissor that actually cuts um, the DNA strand. And if you provide the change that is required or that you need to, to put in there to edit, then this whole system really is a fantastic tool for genome editing. And so how did you use that genome editing to pursue this hypothesis? So as Tim said, we were wanted to study the fitness cause of this certain mutation, which is the C. 580Y mutant, which is really almost at fixation levels um, in Southeast Asia. So what we did is we used a field sample bearing the wild type Kelch 13, isolated from a patient visiting the Wang Fa clinic run by Shoklo Malaria Research Unit in Thailand. We used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the wild type field sample to a mutant C580Y. So we changed the single amino acid on the same parasite background. And since we wanted to compare the C580Y mutant to another less successful mutant, we chose another mutant, the R561H, which has um, decreased in the population after two, uh, 2012. So we also introduced a shield mutation. Now these are synonymous changes to prevent the Cas9 from recognizing um, the already edited part of, this, of the genome. Once we had generated the edits, we conducted head-to-head -head competition experiments to measure the fitness consequences of the introduced mutations. And um, we maintained these cultures for 60 days and removed 80 microliters of packed RBCs every four days to monitor the outcome of the competition. We extracted DNA, and then we amplified a 249 base pair region of the Kelch 13 gene that would include all the desired mutations that we introduced. So we pulled all these amplicons, and that was like 371, with different barcodes, and we sequenced them on the MySeq platform. We used DNA scripts to um, determine the frequencies of the competing parasites in our cultures. As you might imagine, massive amounts of data are gathered by scientists during this type of experimentation. It takes a specialist to bring it all together and have it make sense. Uh, my name is Shirley, and I work here as a uh, bioinformatics. I process all the data from this project, and uh, I check all the um, signals. We will sequence each sample using the high-throughput sequence um, tools. We use MySeq here. So the MySeq is able to sequence multiple samples at the same time, not like the old days, people uh, check the uh, signals in each sample one by one, so it take a lot of work and it take a lot of time to do it. But now with MySeq and with uh, our decoding method, we are able to 
check all the signals at very short time. Probably in one day, we are able to deal with more than 300 samples. Then what do you do with the data in order to test your hypothesis? We sequence the whole genome. I checked the locus we expected to have mutant, and the locus will should not have mutants. So I need to make sure the locus that we edited has the correct mutant, and all the other place, nothing happened there. Now that you have found that your hypothesis might not have been directly on target, what's the next experiment? Where do you go from here? So next step, we will go to cross to generate a combination of different parasites. So we have Y-type and we have the um, couch mutant. We want to see if they go through the life cycle, if there are other loci, or this one is winning during different life cycle, because here we only checked blood stages. We will check mosquito stages, and we will check liver stages, and to see if there, uh, this couch mutant is winning in other stages. So it's detective work. It's scientific yeah. detective work. What do you like about it? Why, why is this your passion? So uh, I like to work on this kind of work that may we may find something, maybe cure people who are sick. So without this, what my work will be only like coding, it's just related to number or some signal. But with this, it gave a meaning for my job. Dr. Tim Anderson explains his lab is focused on how science can help circumvent the inevitable evolution of parasites that cause disease. I'm interested in really evolution of infectious disease. I believe that the major problems with uh, infectious disease control are evolutionary problems. We treat parasites or, or bacteria with enormous amounts of, uh, uh, of, of, you know, of anti-malarials or antibacterial agents, and it's no surprise that then they evolve resistance that causes us endless problems. We need to really understand the process by which parasites adapt to, uh, uh, to these antimalarials and the, the kinds of genetic changes that are needed by these parasites to respond effectively to drug treatment. If we understand that, we're far better positioned to then develop uh, more effective evolution-proof interventions with long-term success. Uh, with the idea is to have long-term success. One of the really re reoccurring stories in, in treatment of infectious diseases. You get an effective drug, there's a great fanfare, it's rolled out, everyone talks about eradication, and a few years later, uh, it's no surprise at all, resistant parasites arise. And this has been a reoccurring problem. We really need to think uh, about developing evolution-proof interventions rather than being surprised again and again by the fact that evolution occurs. You've been listening to Texas Biobites from Texas Biomed. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe. You can find the podcast on iTunes or just log on to our website, txbiomed.org. Look up the podcasts and sign up by email. They will come right to your inbox. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. 
We love sharing our science. Thanks for listening. I'm Wendy Rigby.